Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 12, 17. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and David Apple to continue our discussion on the book of Revelation. Gentlemen, how are you? David? Doing great, Willie. Good to be back with you guys. Everything's going well here in Paducah. Zellin? I'm doing great. Uh, the weather is getting cold, which makes me excited. And things are, are looking quite nice, actually. I'm I'm just enjoying enjoying it out here in the in the prairies. David, how's the weather in Paducah? It's getting cold, man. I can barely take it. The high today was sixty, I think, uh, sixty and sunny on Sunday. I had a, a member bring me uh, what was left of her of her uh, jalapeno plants, so I got a, a whole bunch of jalapenos. Are you guys still getting anything from your garden? Any late produce? There's some jalapenos hanging out on uh, on the vines there. The gourds are hardy. The gourds are, I mean, the gourd vines have not even died down yet. We're waiting on that frost. So, <laughs> Considering I had to scrape my window on Sunday morning, I'm going to say no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're uh, you know, we're gearing up for, uh, for autumn. It's still, it, it's here, I suppose, but the leaves are still all on the trees. Everything's still green, but it's about to change. Everything's about to change. I can feel it. And then Zelwyn, so for the folks at home that don't know, when we record, we can actually see each other at a great distance. We believe it to be witchery, but we can see each other on camera. We don't record video, but Zelwyn is in a cozy office uh, surrounded by wood paneling. And uh, it, let me set the stage. It's, uh, it's wood paneling. Um, he's wearing only buckskin. He has his microphone. There is a phone jack inexplicably high on the wall, perhaps for a, a legacy kitchen phone, and he has 47 foot of Ethernet cable for reasons I don't entirely understand. I don't know how this man lives, but this is how he does it. I, I feel like this is doxing somehow. I'm, I'm not really <laughs> sure how, but we, we don't understand it, but he, he keeps telling us that he must live a certain way, a certain and this way. is just the way. This is the way it is. <laughs> It keep, but it keeps the cold out wherever he is. It's true. It's true. Well, gentlemen, keep, speaking of keeping the cold out, we are back uh, talking about Revelation. We are getting into the fiery chapters here. We're coming up in chapters 12 and 13, which is everyone's favorite. So, David, why don't you uh, kick off the discussion for us, kind of tell us where we're at here in the book. Yeah, it's, uh, it definitely is everybody's favorite part, and for good reason. I mean, uh, when, when we were talking just a minute before we started recording, uh, we were saying this is where the fun really gets started. But I think it's helpful to remember its place within the book so that you're not just, you know, zeroing in on the three numerals, 666 or something like that. Chapter 12 and 13 are the vision of um, the dragon and the woman and the child, and then we're going to maybe get to the two beasts here today too, hopefully. But that com this comes as sort of the, um, I think that it's all connected to the, the scroll that was, that began to be opened or unsealed back in chapter, when did that start? Chapter six of the book, I think. So you have the vision into heaven where Jesus takes his place at the right hand of the father. He unseals the scroll 
John eats the scroll. And of course, there's all kinds of plagues that happen um, in between those two things. And then the way that I think that it should be read here, you guys can certainly chime in or contradict me if you want. uh, But I think what he's seeing, this is the content of the scroll that he that he ate. And so now, in a sense, he's spitting it back out for us um, so that we can see what was on that scroll, too. Well, especially because this section comes in the kind of the the big interlude between the trumpets and then the final sevens, uh, which will come later. Uh, You know, and so we're seeing an image of what is going on, kind of a general picture of the, the whole trouble that the saints are going through. And kind of uh, speaking of these things in very broad terms, because now we see a picture in chapter 12 of the church, uh, where it's coming from and where it's going. So it's kind of a revelation within revelation, which I think is why this these two chapters tend to get so much attention in, in the popular imagination, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think so. The the You get a lot of detail, um, so it's... I don't want to say fantastical, but I don't know what other word. It's apocalyptic, right? Um, You get the details about uh, this woman who's clothed with the sun and the moon and the stars, and you get details about the dragon and how many heads it has. So, you know, if if you know if you're an artist, this certainly attracts your attention. It attracts the imagination. You can you can picture the things that are being described here. I think a little bit more. Well, they're very vivid. And in a way that you can't quite picture the the plagues breaking out in the same to the same level of detail. Willie, do you have anything to add to that? Or uh, no, I mean uh, I think that's all very good. You know, eleven is flowing right here into twelve. Uh, you have the Ark of the Covenant in the temple at the end of chapter eleven, and then all of a the sudden there are these signs in the heaven. There's lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. And then a sign appears in the heaven, and it's this great, this is this woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Uh, do you want to tell the folks at home who this woman is? Uh, the woman is the uh, astro, astrological sign Virgo. Um, the, <laughs> the woman, I think what's happening here, uh, John is encapsulating uh, whatever word you want to use here, he's summing up kind of the whole story of of scripture, the whole story of the Old Testament. Um, I take the woman here to be, she is faithful Israel, if you want to put it that way. She is the nation, the people of God who are, she's pregnant with the, the Christ child. And so in a sense, Israel has always been the carrier, the bearer of Christ into the world. And so she, you know, represents Israel. And then of course, I think uh, as we read on, that is concentrated in the Virgin Mary, who is the one who actually gives birth to Christ, not as the nation, but as the one particular woman. So do you believe that Joseph's dream in Genesis, what is it, 37, do you believe that he is dreaming of the Blessed Virgin Mary or, or something else here? No, I think the, uh, the connection with Joseph is that Joseph's dreaming about himself, and um, he's dreaming about his brothers coming and bowing down to him. But he he sees in his dreams in a similar way what John sees. So Joseph sees his brothers, the sons of Israel, bowing down to him. And doesn't yeah. he also, he sees the sun and the moon bow down, his mother and father. And so um, Israel, the, the people of Israel, 
are there dreamt of in these astro- astrological terms. And so John um, sees much the same thing. He sees Israel, but she looks like a, she doesn't look like a bunch of different people. She looks like a woman clothed in these cosmic um, in clo- cosmic clothing. Right. So she is uh, very pregnant. Birth is imminent. She already is having the birth pains. She's in the agony. Another sign appears in the heaven, and who shows up? The, the devil. The end. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The opposer, right? And uh, so this goes all the way back. Um, again, John, and this is what's great about Revelation, is it's kind of a test. How well do you know the Old Testament, right? Can you see how, how many passages can your mind pile together? So Genesis 3.15 certainly comes to mind. You've got the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Who are who are at enmity with one another? And well, uh, and this is actually important because we're going to be it'll be Advent before we know it, and we'll be and then Christmas uh, following that. So it's the season where um, you're going to see a lot of you know the great theologians at places like History.com and Cracked.com and elsewhere, and they're going to go. You know, the Bible uh, Genesis doesn't say that the serpent is the devil. The Bible doesn't say that. It's like well, Revelation explicitly identifies the serpent. <laughs> If you just right. read on, thou unbeliever, yeah. uh, read read to the end of the book. Maybe you'll learn something. And you know, so actually, guys, so you know, somewhere there is some smart Alec Lutheran saying that some like newly retired, you know, closet lib is out there going, "Well, actually, it never says it's the devil." <laughs> and, and then he goes is, off to <laughs> this is anti legomena. So are we gonna? That's you know, right. T- which which means we, we let- don't have to listen to it, right? Right. Right. <laughs> Remember, guys, old libs don't want you to believe the Bible, and sometimes they wear a confessional crown. It's a very strange thing. So listen to what the men say, not what the people say about them. It's not just old libs; it's new libs too. But that's well, I mean, old, old, old lib in spirit. That's what I'm saying. Here, ah, you know? gotcha. Yeah, uh, uh, like a, a spiritual malady. But you're you're correct. Age wise, yeah, it's not just old. I, yeah, I, I'm talking like a Simonexer here, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there there are new ones too. All these people who want to seek new and novel things, whether they identify themselves as confessional or not, you know, they're always going to want to cast doubt on this. And it's funny how they always want to cast doubt on things like here, you know, that will actually affect faith. Like creation or the devil or you know, salvation, uh, you know, the ne- the necessity of yeah. preaching Christ. Yeah, hell. Right. Yeah. They're you know, everybody's going to now we're going to get spammed with capon quotes. So it's it's almost as if there's some spiritual drive behind all of it. I, I yeah. can't quite put my finger on it. <laughs> almost as if there's some kind of principality, if you will, Zelwyn, <laughs> who some is uh, sort of pulling, the, pulling the levers here. <laughs> I really want to talk about his heads and horns. And yeah, stuff. yeah, we'll go oh. on. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, so the appearance, the appearance of the devil, um, or the the appearance of the dragon. He's not identified as the devil yet, but the reader, the perceptive it's reader, it's um, coming. Knows, yeah. So his his appearance is worth pointing out, and uh, he's he's red. That's the first detail. He's a great red dragon, seven heads, ten horns, and on top of each of his head, he has a diadem. So seven total diadems. And you know, you look back in the Old Testament again. 
Um, how well do you know your Old Testament, Zelwyn? Aren't you preaching through the entire Old Testament, just Lectio Continua, something like Zellin that? Has not, Zellin has not fully embraced the New Testament yet. That's how serious <laughs> he is about the Old Testament. So go ahead, Zellwyn. What, what do you see here? <laughs> well, the, the redness, I think, is a is calling forth, uh, you know, the imagery we saw before, like with the, the red horse. Yeah. Um, or I'm thinking of Zechariah, you know, this idea of fiery, this burning, this kind of thing. So it is one who is fiery, one who is causing this kind of trouble. But the, the seven, the heads, the horns and the crowns in this case are a reference to the the dominion which Satan has. Now, whether he has that legitimately is something we can talk about, of course. But the fact that he is one who comes having authority and he's expressing this authority with uh, his heads and his horns and his crowns so that we see him being one who appears immensely powerful, right? Because yeah. seven and ten, of course, are different numbers signifying completion or greatness, you know, the, the seventh and the tenth. So we see one here who has the appearance of great authority and also one who appears to have you know, the, the authority on upon his head, the seven crowns. Which means that according to Romans 13, we have to obey him, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, podcast done. We're done here. So. <laughs> right. Well, because I, I want to contrast this, though, with, say, Christ, uh, the, the white rider towards the end of Revelation, who is said to have many crowns. Yes. Right. He's not given a specific number. He's just said to have many diadems, many crowns. And so, but for for, uh, the devil here to have seven shows that he is one who appears to have great worldly authority. And and there's almost an appearance of, I mean, this is seven, right? So it's almost an appearance of godliness, if you will. Sure, yeah. You know, it's this sort of false, there's almost a false holiness to it. I mean, even though he's a... He's a usurper, so he's this great red dragon. You know he's evil, but what does he put upon himself? Right. The the appearance of authority. Right. Or or you think back to the, the locusts who came forth from the pit, how they were all described as wearing crowns because they yeah. want to have the appearance of authority. Contrast that again with the saints at the, the beginning of the book who cast their crowns before the Lord. Right. They are showing that they, that authority comes from God, whereas the devil wants to keep it for himself. Right. Let's talk about him being red. This is kind of a fun one. You know, this is another one where they go, the Bible doesn't describe the devil as red. Once again, we're going to get to verse nine. It's going to be very clear who this is. But what do they mean by red when they describe him as red? I think uh, what what comes to mind, I think whether you're whether you have a biblical reference for this or not, but um, the red red as a symbol of anger. Um, Zelwyn mentioned fire before. Um, it's a consuming, it's a, it's not a pleasant, peaceful kind of a creature, right? It's, um, it's, he's angry. The, the other thing that comes, that comes to mind here, and we'll see this with the, the beasts that come up in chapter 13, I think certainly Daniel, Daniel's visions are in the background here. When Daniel sees these, these beasts that represent the different empires that are going to arise in his time and shortly after his time. Um, now, when John sees the devil, he sees him as the one who's actually, you know, animating those, those worldly empires. So what was on the four creatures in, uh, in Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter seven 
now is these are the things that the devil actually, you know, when he appears, this is what he looks like. So the horns, the crowns, the head, the multiple heads, this stuff is all very reminiscent of the worldly powers from Daniel's visions. Well, especially because very often in the book of Revelation, heads are presented as representing something like kingdoms and horns are very often representing kings. Now they're, they're interchangeable, of course, you know, they kind of go back and forth, but you do have this idea of a worldly kingdom, a worldly king who is arising and uh, the crown being a symbol of that authority. And where else does Satan show his deception more than among the, the powers of the world, those who are still blinded to a spiritual reality, right? Yeah. Yeah, the, in the, this is all over the prophets, too. When the prophets talk, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, when they talk about Egypt and they talk about um, Babylon, they'll every once in a while slip in these references to Pharaoh as a, he is like a dragon. Um, or sometimes it even uses the word Leviathan. Mm-hmm. And so these this monstrous quality of the worldly empires is now revealed for what it really is, which is not just, you know, Pharaoh had delusions of power, but there is a there is a um, diabolical element to these things. Yeah. Or as Paul says, I mean, I tell you what pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. You know, that this is something which uh, the demonic forces pushing the, the, the demonic powers of the world, uh, those who are opposed to God are going to continuously be showing their opposition because they are of their father, the devil. Yeah, and this is an important thing to remember that you cannot secularize this text. Um, nope. it, 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 there is no honest reading that makes this purely about worldly powers, you know, human powers, to be right. more specific, that there is clearly the spiritual dynamic here. You know, who is the the real power behind the throne here? And it is going to be revealed to be the devil. Now, we don't, we're going to get to the the battle between good and evil here in the next segment. But, you know, suffice it to say that there is a real spiritual battle happening in the book of Revelation, just as there is today. Uh, and it's an important thing for us to remember that ultimately, with all the evil you see befalling your nation and uh, and your churches or something like that, remember you're ultimately not wrestling against flesh and blood. You're in this spiritual struggle against these malevolent forces. And thankfully, Jesus Christ and his angels fight valiantly on your side. So you're going to win this one, trust me. But but it might it might look, you know, it's, it's darkest just before the dawn, as, yeah, that's as true. we say. Well, Which, and I think what you're trying to say, Willie, is, is that there is no political solution to these things. That the- no, no long-term political solution. <laughs> 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 well, and, and the the point being that we're not going to vote our way out of these, <laughs> no, you know, no. These issues you're not going to vote your like way that. out, and you're not going to spending bill your way out. You're not going to allocate the right funds or deallocate a certain number of funds and stop the evil. Right? As long as my tax dollars don't go to it, that means I'm opposing evil. No, that's not going to be enough. It's not going to be sufficient. It's going to take something more, and it's going to take a, a, an act of God to strike down evil and to uh, bring back the wayward as it were. Exactly. Yeah. The, and so, you know, the, the what we've got the woman, we've got the dragon. We should probably quickly mention the child who actually is, is born here. It's interesting to me anyways, that there's such a brief mention of the child who is Jesus, the Christ. Right. And I think that's, 
John doesn't want to just skip over him. And I, I don't want to suggest that he's insignificant here, but this is important to remember the purpose of the book of Revelation is not to be a fifth gospel, um, but it's to say, it's to um, draw attention to the what the church is going to go through, the body of Christ. So the child is born, and there is this mention that he is the one who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Um, so as much as the devil has, you know, he's got all these diadems and these horns, um, he doesn't have the rod of iron. And this this is Christ's domain. Um, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so he's mentioned here, he's born, and just as soon as he appears in the vision, he's caught up to God. And so, you, again, you don't have a, a full description of his ministry other than the end goal of his ministry, which is the, the authority of all, over all things. Yeah. Well, all right, guys, we're at our first break. We'll be right back with more about Revelation here on A Word Fitly Spoke. spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and David Apple. We're talking about the book of Revelation, in particular, chapter 12. All right, well, we've identified the lady in birth. We've identified the devil. We'll be more explicit in a little bit. We've talked about the Christ child. So, David, where are we going next? Well, the there is one one thing that we haven't mentioned in that initial, the initial vision, which is what happens to the woman. After, so the child is snatched up into heaven. He takes his place, at, and I think you know, that's the ascension of Jesus, right? He takes his place at the right hand of the Father, and that's what chapters four and five record from heaven's perspective. But then what happens to the woman? And again, this is, you got to be a little bit, what's the right way to say this, guys? You have to, you have, to be, have a little bit of mental flexibility here. So the woman was Israel, was Mary, and is now going to be a figure representing the church? Is that fair to, to make those things? Do we need to establish that? Well, if, if we're saying Israel, we don't mean like ethnic Israel here. We're talking about the church who was called Israel in the Old yeah. Testament, right? So you could you could put it in those terms. Yeah. yeah. And, and, yeah and we have to be very clear on the continuity there between what was the people of God, lest we fall into the dispensationalist trap right. of, you know, you know, oh, you know, there's still different peoples of God. There's one people of God united in Christ from the beginning. Sorry. Yeah. So this, that was, yeah, um, Old Testament 
Mary. And then now um, the woman runs away into the wilderness and she finds out in the wilderness there's a place prepared for her and she's kept safe for this period of time, 1,260 days. And uh, we're going to get this again. John's going to come back to that in a, after a, this description of what happens in heaven at the same time. Uh, but just to see the church, and, and you can think of you know, what Jesus said um, to his disciples, when you see these things, flee into the wilderness, mm-hmm. right? And uh, escape the wrath that's coming on Jerusalem. So I think that's what, you know, if you're looking for historical markers here, I think it's good to keep what happened, what is, uh, again, a lot here depends on your understanding of um, when the book of Revelation was written. Uh, but I think that what he's talking about is what is soon to happen in the city of Jerusalem. Well, and just, and even when you're saying she's going to the place prepared for her of God or prepared by God, that shows for one thing, again, God's control over the situation. She's not running away you know, just going out into the wilderness, what is going to happen to me? What's going to happen to me? She's going to the place that God intends her to go because he is the one that is going, you know, guiding all of these things. And on top of that, too, um, as we're going to see, especially at the end of chapter 12, she is going to a place where the dragon cannot get her. Now, that doesn't mean that the dragon isn't going to still war against her or more specifically her offspring, but it does show that the, the dragon cannot defeat the church, that the dragon is incapable of destroying that which he has sought to destroy, and she will be protected even during this period of 1,260 days, right? Yeah, I think so. The, this is, again, one of the things that comes up again and again in Revelation is the, the devil's plans are constantly frustrated um, in sort of like a, a maybe if you were a literary critic you would call it a, a deus ex machina kind of a way it just it doesn't he he's going to come for the war at the end with with his army and he's just defeated and there's no real mention of um how the battle takes place here he's trying to get the child well the child is caught up to god you know so his plans are frustrated he tries to get the woman and it just doesn't work out so his that that again is reinforcing this point for the saints that you know, the victory, if you endure, the victory is guaranteed. It's it's for sure. Well, very good. Willie, do you want to add to that? Uh, no, no, I'm kind of waiting here till we get over into this this heavenly battle a little bit more. Um, <laughs> you want well, the because, exciting stuff. So. Well, I mean, we're going to get into Michael, and it's going to be a tricky one because are we looking at, you know, end times battle here? Uh, how do we work the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension into this? So we'll get into that text first before we kind of talk about this. David, do you want to take us into that? Sure. Uh, you want me to read it? Sure. All right. So war. So what happens immediately after this in the text anyways, um, and I think what you said, Willie, is a good question to keep in mind. When, What time period? Are we going back in time? Are we going forward in time here? What's the time period? War arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down 
who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Yeah, so this is going to be an interesting one because you're going to get Satan defeated, but then eventually he'll be loosed for a minute later, right? right? So I think that's important. To, this is where I'm kind of leaning toward, <laughs> if I can be that cautious in an interpretation of a book like this. But it seems to me that we do have Michael casting Satan down without talking about the beginning of time. This is a little bit different. Or the beginning, you know, when the angels first rebelled. This, to me, seems like something that's happening at the crucifixion, resurrection time. Because you have uh, the child caught up, you know, so we can say the ascension too. Let's just put all that together yeah. and just, yeah. you know, Christ at the time of Christ's victory. So you have Colossians 2, right? Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them. So that's, you know, that could be you know, herring of hell kind of stuff too, if you want to look at it that way. But you have also Jesus in John 12 talking about now is the judgment of the world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And so when you're trying to put it on a timeline, it's a little bit tricky, but it seems clear from scripture that you have a defeat of Satan happening, of course, at the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, but there's still more yet to come. The question is, what's ha when is Revelation 12 happening? What do you guys think? I think it's it's I think it's misleading to try to say like it happens specifically at this point because the imagery that John is using throughout the chapter is talking about a very wide period of time. Cuz you know like you say you have the imagery of the Old Testament with the woman also with the church, you know, being in yeah, one image. So it really is this image of what is going on through this whole kind of wide time space as opposed to one like mathematical point. Right. But then that's what I'm saying. Then you get to Christ. And I think the reason why he's, he's there so briefly in the text is because his earthly ministry, the time from his birth, the incarnate, excuse me, the time from the incarnation to the ascension is a relatively short period of time in right. actual history, but it is also the culmination of all of this right. where a lot of this takes place. Well, I don't think you should overlook when it says that uh, the accuser of our brethren, this is verse what, 10, accuser yeah. of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Yeah. So you have the blood of the lamb, of course, which, of course, happens at the crucifixion, you know, when right. Jesus dies. But it's also the word of their testimony. It is the preaching of the gospel that is included in that. That, that overthrows the devil. Yeah. And, and so we are in... This age, the, the age of the church, the kingdom of God is at hand, which means it's conquering the kingdom of, of the devil. Mm -hmm. And and I'm glad you mentioned this because it was a point that I was about to forget to make. So Jesus lives, dies, rises again, ascends to heaven, defeating Satan. But we sometimes picture it as, you know, like uh, pressing a button from far away and the devil just is undone. But no, Michael is the one charged with enforcing the mandate as it were yeah. with uh carrying out the king's decrees and here it, it clearly is michael the angel the archangel right. i would i would that was it i would stake my claim on that one i don't think this is a case where you can go well who is michael here seems pretty clear so that even even satan being cast down is done through means for, including michael but also like you say including the preached word 
And we forget, we, you know, we, don't, we talk about spiritual warfare, but we don't think about the church going out, churches being built, the word being preached as being part of that. We know that kind of instinctively, but we forget it, that Satan is cast down as, uh, as the Holy Spirit works through the gospel. Well, even in the Gospels, uh, with the sending of the 70, you know, when they come back, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I saw Satan fall like lightning, right. And we can't overlook that. It was in their preaching of the Gospel at that moment that Satan was cast down. Well, you know, it's you know? But, well, you don't go with like the interpretation that Jesus goes all Abe Simpson and just starts talking about something that happened a long time ago for no reason. <laughs> yeah, I think, no, well, I, I think it's a it's a, a present reality, right? Yeah, right. Maybe, maybe one way to put it um, that that might help kind of keep it in perspective here: the the life, death, resurrection of Jesus has effects in both heaven and on earth. So um, the devil. Um, if you look back in the Old Testament, you have places like Job where Satan is it has some kind of entrance into the heavenly um, yeah. council room. Okay? And so after Christ's ministry, he no longer has that that same level of access. And that's, I think, what is being described here is he's booted out. He can't get back in. And therefore, his accusations um, cannot be brought into heaven before God the Father. But. He is thrown down on earth. And I didn't read this verse, but the the rejoicing in heaven is also then coupled. There is a bit of a problem, right? There is woe on earth because the devil is now on earth. And so the this is really where the vision is driving is to say, all right, what happens now because of Christ's ministry? Heaven is the devil no longer has access there, but his wrath is poured out on earth and the saints on earth endure that wrath. And so you have to, um, that's really where it's going. That's the the attention that's being driven at. But before we get into that last part, uh, talking about what's going on on earth, because you're right, that is the main focus here, the thing that we really do need to center on. Um, is it too much to say, and you guys can push back on, on this, that what is happening with the preaching of the gospel, what is happening with the triumph of the Lamb is that the kingdom is now expanding. Is I mean, is that too much to say? In the sense, like, you think of Isaiah where it says, of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. You know, that, that there is a sense in which Christ has conquered, and there's also a sense in which he is going forth into enemy territory to conquer all of it. Oh, yeah. I think that's... Yeah. I think that's exactly right, Zelwyn. So the he the child has the rod, and mm-hmm. it is his to um, to rule over all nations. And but that is not that isn't the reality of what we see right now. So like Hebrews, all things are under his feet, but we don't see that. That's First Corinthians fifteen too, right? That that he is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and the church the mission of the church is to extend that authority, um, to bring it into effect. I don't know. I don't know what exactly the right way to say that is, but um, to convert the nations to Christ because they are his, that is his rightful inheritance is the, yeah, all of them. Can we, to exercise dominion, if you will. There you go. <laughs> it, it's funny. Guys don't like that word because they associate it with 90s theonomy or something. Uh, but weak men don't like that word. Weak, weak Christians don't like the word dominion. Dominion belongs to Christ, and Christ has a mandate to go ye into all the world making disciples. So you're conquering by any other name. 
Now, you're not doing it by sword, but you're doing it through a sword, so to speak, the sword of the Spirit, and you are conquering, and more nations are conquered by the gospel. They flourish, and God is glorified until they you know, fall into the hands of the devil once again. But, but no, evangelism... And I'm in a you know in the strictest sense is a an activity of dominion, and we want that. Mm-hmm. I want to convert people, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, according to God's will, He will. And where people are conquered, nations are conquered, and that's a good thing. I want Christian nations, Zelwin and David. I I don't yeah, have this yeah. uh, you know I don't have this fetishistic view of of suffering. We will suffer. That is promised, but a lot of these guys think that, oh, if life becomes worse, that it's magically going to lead to revival, and it doesn't. It does not lead to, uh, all, all. it does not always lead to. God does sustain the faithful remnant in the midst of that. That is the promise, but you shouldn't be like just, you know, rubbing your hands together and just gleefully waiting for the collapse of your homeland. You should, you should pray that God uh, shows mercy in two ways, that he brings people back to Christ, but that he also, you know, helps them live lives where they have enough food and they're not at the mercy of roving gangs and things like that. Because because when you're praying for your nation to fall, that's what you're praying for. You're praying for the devil to win for a time, whether you realize that or not. But understand that God can make Christians in good times too. Now, I believe bad times are coming. I believe Revelation teaches that. But at the same time, you, you guys need to slow your roll a little bit here. Prepare for the bad things that are to come, but also pray that God would show mercy temporally as well as spirit as well as eternally. That's a good thing. But at the same time, yeah, I'm not naive. Uh, please, by all means, uh, have have water and some ramen noodles in stock. Don't get me. Do not misinterpret me here. Yeah, we have to be realistic here. But at the same time, we shouldn't be. We should not be gleeful. Uh, when a nation when a nation falls into the hands of the devil, I guess is, is the takeaway here. And also, like when to go along with that, I do want to say that evangelism is an act of war. We should say it that clearly: an act of war against the devil, right? But also, when Jesus says very clearly that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, do realize that what he is saying there is that the gates of hell will not be able to resist the church. You know, the the gates are. Gates which prevail are gates which are standing firm against the church, but the church is going out on the offense in order to bring about the dominion of Christ into all the world. But is it is it even too far to say then that there is a sense in which Satan is always falling because the church is going out into the world to conquer his territory? Yeah, I think the what Michael did in heaven is now what the church is doing on earth, right? We pray on earth as it is in heaven. So we want the same we want the same banishing of the devil that is accomplished and finished in heaven to also be accomplished and finished on earth even while we recognize, you know, you put as many caveats in here as are are necessary like that won't really be finished until Christ returns. I'm not saying anything against that, but the mission of the church is to continue that warfare and even the means are the same, right? The blood of the lamb, the preaching of the gospel. This is what conquered the devil in heaven, and it's what also banishes him on earth. Yeah, and I, and I think that that is, you know, it exists not just in the context of like a guy going out and preaching in the street corners. It's also the father preaching to his children, and it's the the master 
teaching as slaves, right? It's or the employer, uh, the the superior teaching the inferior, as it were, and and so it's in every sphere Christ is preached, every sphere Christ is proclaimed, the word of God taught, and the devil is routed, in every sphere, um, but ultimately in the you know the main one. But you know, I uh, I'm just not willing to cede any ground to the enemies of the gospel. <laughs> <laughs> and we're we're looking forward to a church which is going from victory to victory, not a church which is limping along sadly and you know is going to fail eventually yeah. and we need to get or, out of the or way. Z- or Zelwyn, a church that looks like this great red dragon that has the semblance of godliness, this great beast that has a form of godliness upon his head with all of these diadems, right? We don't want that church either. Right. You, know, you definitely don't want to be a part of that. That's worse than being a part of no church at all. Having the appearance of godliness but denying but, its but denying power. But denying its power. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if I don't know if the illustration here, Zelwyn, is is fog machines and big productions or if it's brocaded chasubles and miters. I don't know. But <laughs> we'll I leave can... that one up to you. <laughs> there were there were ten ten horns, so there's room for both. There's there's room for both. Yeah. All across the spectrum. <laughs> All right, guys, we're almost up to our next break. Any last words on this subject before we head to the to the next chapter? Well, I think uh, what I would just add in here is that it, it is good to see Revelation not and not to take this uh, vision of because what's going to go on next is that the dragon is going to persecute the children of the woman, right, or her other offspring. And so if you take that as this is describing the church of all times and all places, then you you do get into this kind of what a pessimistic mentality of, well, we're just always going to suffer under the, the, you know, the persecution of the dragon. And there's nothing we can do about it other than to just hole up in the wilderness and wait for, you know, Christ to return. What we're talking about here is saying there is a time and a place for fleeing. There is a time and a place for hiding. But there's also a war there. That's that's not always the strategy, right? There's other tactics to engage in um, in winning the war. Right. There's a time to gird up your loins and do stuff I can't say on a public podcast. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Is, is this is this a Rod Dreher respecting podcast? Yes or no? <laughs> um, is there such thing as Rod Dreher respecting? <laughs> Point taken. We'll be right back with more word fitly spoken right after this. Listening to a word fitly spoken, I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and David Apple talking about Revelation chapter 12. Well, it's been a very uh, fun one, and um, the dryer people did not call up in between recording this segment and the last, so 
we're okay. A lot of guys like that. We're going to talk a little. We're going to talk more about that as Revelation goes on. Uh, you know, hunkering down, building community, but also still sending out. But for now, we've got more Revelation twelve to talk about. David, where are we going? Yeah, well, where we're headed now. So the uh, the child was born. He took his place in heaven. The woman disappeared into the wilderness um, to the place prepared for her. And then you get that interlude where the devil uh, now comes down on earth and he's furious. Right. So um, in verse 13, starting at 13, I'll just read a little bit. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had been who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. So you get this this vision of the devil's attempts to destroy the church. He couldn't he couldn't stop Christ. He couldn't destroy the child. So now he turns his attention to um, the child's mother and he goes after her. But she's kept safe. Yeah, and especially with the the imagery of uh, the wings of a great eagle, you know, the I mean, you have the psalm Im- imagery, of course, you know, the, like the wing wings of an eagle <laughs> lift you up on eagle's wings. That's that's how it goes. Your your favorite <laughs> hymn, Willie. There you go. No. But I mean, it the, it's the imagery of speed. It's the imagery of flight. You know that she is going into a place where the dragon cannot follow. Right, that she is going to be taken into this place and protected and nourished for a time and times and half a time, which, of course, corresponds to 42 and 1,260 and all those various ways of uh, presenting it. So it's all the same time, which is basically a poetic way of talking about three and a half, you know, half of seven. So it is a time which is not forever. It is a time just does not go on for, you know, indefinite, like it's just going to go on until the end of time. It is a time which is defined. It is a specific period of time in which she is going to be persecuted. And yet the devil will not be able to destroy her. Right? Would you would you say that it's like the time when Nero persecutes the Christians? Or maybe it's like <laughs> the, um, the amount of time, say, of like a famous, I don't know, Jewish Roman war. Like roughly in that, <laughs> roughly. In that kind of time frame, like three and a half years, you know. Right. Well, absolutely. It's all it's all related. Yeah. And of course, I would connect it to previous persecutions too. You know, with Antiochus, and you know, before the time of the New Testament, you have the Jewish Roman War uh, with the destruction of the city in seventy. I mean, these things are all related. But I, I do think that they are pictures of the ongoing struggle. Right. That it is something that is. The devil is constantly going to be going after the church, and that's not going to let up, but it is defined for a specific period of time. Well, do you, do you think that the devil is going after the church today? Is well, I was going to say is the Pope Catholic, but then I stopped <laughs> right. but, <laughs> is Is the Pope a rep? Is the, is, is, is the Pope reptilian? <laughs> is the Queen of England from this world? It, let's let's uh, let's uh, let's contextualize Revelation for our time. Let's go big hell. Let's let's do some Hal Lin- Lindsay posting. Big Hal Lindsay hours here. How do you think? <laughs> how do you gentlemen see the the serpent coming after the church today? Well, I think that's. I think it's it's much more like uh, what happens in chapter thirteen than it is like here in chapter twelve. Mm-hmm. So in thirteen, the be- the the dragon's going to raise up some beasts, and then there's a little mm-hmm. image. 
and uh, you get the mark of the beast there at the end yeah. of 13. I think that's the kind of persecution we uh, experience more than this. Uh, you know, obviously we're not being, well, maybe I shouldn't say obviously, we're not being physically martyred in the way that they were in the first century in Rome. There's, we don't have a Nero lighting us up as human lamps for his uh, garden parties and driving his chariot chariot around. But we do have all these all these pressures, all these subtle subversions, all these ways of undermining the faithful, and oftentimes by religious leaders, right? Um, so the Pope calls into question all kinds of things that shouldn't be called into question. Yeah. What if I what if I keep some big rush duty hours here? Always. <laughs> Always. And say that we see the warfare happening like uh, ideologically, uh, that these encroachments upon um, human thought, like with Marxism, with, uh, you know, that, those kinds of things influencing the way that we think and in that way causing us to think in non-biblical ways. Be and transformed by the renewing of your mind implies that you can be deformed by right. having a non-renewed mind. Right. Yeah. Or that you can be deformed even, at, you know, that you can lose it, you know, that yeah. makes shipwreck yeah. of your faith. And of course, when we get into 13, which won't be today, we're going to talk about all the fun stuff like marks and chips and everything else <laughs> that everybody's wondering about. But we don't want to, we want you to come back for that episode. So we're not going to talk Television. about it all here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what else? I mean... Our boy John sees a talking image that deceives people. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> well, okay. So let me let me go back to to this. Uh, you know, Zellin, you're making the point. There is this limited time where mm -hmm. this this goes on, and I think that's you know when you look through church history, there are times of it's not just constant persecution, right? So there are times where there is this intensity of persecution that then passes away and the gospel is, uh, or the church comes out of hiding or comes out of, uh, you know, kind of being sealed up, being protective. And then you, oftentimes there's a great missionary advance. So if you think of the time of the apostles, um, you know, you kind of have both going on, but in Jerusalem, the initial uh, growth of the church in Jerusalem is quickly met with this um, opposition by Herod, it's, it's met with persecution, physical suffering of the apostles. And so they have to leave Jerusalem, which then opens up the, the mission to the Gentile world. And I think if you, if you look through different regions and uh, how things go, when the gospel comes into a region, there is this warfare, there's this clashing of kingdoms, and then there's often um, the initial success is met with some kind of some kind of persecution, but that persecution doesn't last forever. And then there is, you know, the end of the 1,260 days, so to speak, opens up a time for missionary growth. A time, a time of revival, you might say. Yeah, I mean, let's let's uh, Reformation pose for a minute here. You kind of have that. <laughs> it's kind of funny. We forget the kind of the peaceful period, you know, where. The Lutheran Reformation is able to spread throughout Germany and other regions that after a certain point, like Luther's a little nervous at first, but ostensibly after Worms, he's uh, protected by the prince. So he's able to freely publish what he wants. 
Um, a lot of people don't like that take, but it is the historic fact that he's not in great danger after a while. He's pretty well protected. But you did have a period there where it was very likely he was going to lose his head. And while he is comfortably riding from Wittenberg, you know, it's kind of like, I, I, I like the line where it, it, it's true. You know, Melanchthon and I sat and drank Wittenberg beer. The word did everything. Well, it did, but there were also preachers going out with that word and they were being killed. So, right. so depending on, you know, put that into context there, Luther, I hope is not saying that, that it was just sort of going out there in some sort of ephemeral way. No, there were people going out and in certain regions, there was peace. They were able to take an assessment of the churches, see what they needed and to teach and to train and to preach, administer the sacraments and all of that. But elsewhere they were going, they were being, you know, bound to stakes and burned or, or, you know, garroted, garroted as it were, um, things like that, uh, strangled. And so you, but you see that cycle, even in reformation history is my point where there are, there are times and especially on, on the continent, it goes back and forth a little bit, doesn't it? With, with, Hey, we're safe to practice our religion. No, we're not. Uh, so it happens even outside of Rome and even outside of the Soviet union, because that's how we, uh, picture his, how many Christians picture history. Right, uh, the the early church, which was persecuted by the Romans in their mind, they're not allowed to talk about the Jewish persecution, but the Romans, and then everything was cool. Maybe there was some popish persecution. They don't really talk about that. And then, you know, the the, the USSR or something like that. But <laughs> you know, all throughout history, there's been this cycle of suffering, but it led to victory and led to a time where the church was able to expand in peace. Then of course it would the peace would eventually end too. Right, right. All right. So yeah. So when Luther says, and I do, I do want to make that point very clear. When Luther says the word did everything, of course he understands the great cost that people, the great danger that certain preachers were put into, and the great cost of the that people gave up in order to spread that gospel. And so when you say that word, when you say that phrase, please do not mean it like many people do today. And it's like, well, I just sat and drank and. People became Christians <laughs> somehow, some way, right? Somehow, some way, yeah. It's it's a call to uh, trust the word to do it, but you still have to trust the means that the word prescribes, namely preachers, pastors, yeah. teachers. Yeah. The witness because yeah, needs a martyr, yeah, yeah. right? Because the uh, the dragon is not overthrown by the blood of the lamb and the Christians drinking beer. Uh, the, the, Christ, the dragon's thrown overthrown by the word of their testimony. The yes. word must and, be preached. The celebratory drinking does come in the eschaton at that great high feast. There you go. Right. With fatty meat and, and wine on the lees, things like that. So be good stuff. Yeah. If you're not a wine drinker, you're not going to uh you're not going to enjoy heaven. Sorry, <laughs> independent fundamentalist Baptists. If you're not we, a wine we, drinker, you will be. We just right. lost that we just lost half our audience. We just really. lost half our audience. Yeah. Guys, come back. Please re knot your ties and come back to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> So the um, here's a, here's a question that you guys can help me with in, at the end of chapter twelve. Here you've got the woman is kept safe, and if we take her as a figure of the church, um, mm-hmm. the church is kept safe. But some are, but then there's these other people that the devil goes afterwards. So how how do you understand this? Um, who is the woman here? Is she a is she a picture of the totality of the church, or is she just you know certain? a certain geographic part of the church. Is this, does this question make sense? Mm-hmm. She, yeah. she flees into the wilderness. She's protected. And it's very Exodus 
it, it sounds like the Exodus because that's where the eagle's wings come in. The devil spews out all this water. And um, instead of getting the woman, the water is drunk up by the land um, and she's protected. But then he goes off to make war on the rest of her offspring. So apparently she's been very busy and has multiple offspring in other places. What do, you, what do we make of that? Well, it's, it's the same image. I mean, we have the woman being the church, you know, that she is an image of, I guess you could say the totality, but, you know, she has many children that she has, you know, those who actually uh, keep the commandments, those who believe in Jesus. So it's kind of a, a both and image. And I mean, even Jesus is called, you know, our brother, for example, or the firstborn among many brethren. So you do have this imagery of the church, not only as a body, but also as brothers, as, as multiple individuals, I guess you could say, um, if you don't stretch the, the language too far. And to recognize that, you know, the church is safe against the, the attacks of Satan. She cannot be overthrown, but that doesn't preclude individual Christians being assaulted by the devil. In fact, that's where he's going to concentrate his attack. Yeah, so it's almost it's almost like there is there are attacks that the devil makes on certain geographic um, parts of the church that don't affect the the whole rest of the church, right? I think this is this is uh, one of the places where you know in, in one of our previous shows on Revelation we talked about these different you know the four kinds of interpretations of Revelation. This is where again um, part of the the interpretive power of the preterist view is you you have this intense focus on what's happening in Jerusalem, but that also helps the the non-Jerusalem church understand what's coming to her. So yeah. if you well, take the woman as Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Christians, they flee the city of Jerusalem. Uh, but now the devil at the end of chapter 12, he's going out. Um, and w- what kind of warfare is he going to carry out yeah. on the other, well, the other and, congregations? And you're right. There are localized uh, attacks that are that are different, and it depends on where you're at, right? Certain parts of the world are in bondage to the devil in a way that others are not. Uh, we it's kind of like with sin. We all the time say all sin is sin, and no, it isn't. There there are degree degrees of sinfulness and rankings of sins in the Bible. Confessions teach this as well, and so there are different degrees of hardening, for example, and different degrees of darkness, so that. And, and in the Lord in his providence brings the gospel to them in his own time. I mean, you have a big chunk of the what they now call the global south that was left in heathen darkness a lot longer than Europe was. Europe is Christianized first, and then they eventually send missionaries down, for example. So for a time, the devil is given a greater sway over places. So that you can say that, I mean, it's just a fact, right? I mean, outside of North Africa, which is... The, the gospel is there, but you look at like sub-Saharan, right? Or right. the Inca tribes or whatever. It takes a little while for the gospel to get to them. But the gospel reaches uh, the British Isles pretty early in the history of the church. Right. Right. And so the, this is part of the hand of providence uh, when we're talking about the gospel spreading. But the devil also seems to tailor his persecutions, right? Uh, to, or excuse me, and it tailors his, uh, his temptations even. So that in a more primitive society, he's still doing old school paganism, like you might find, you know, uh, where you might find um, explicit human sacrifice, not our implicit human sacrifice to comfort and things like that. You know, where we have where we have abortion, 
And when we have aborted uh, fetal cells for the sake of, uh, I don't know, better candy coatings on ibuprofen or something like that, in certain parts of the world, you still have, and you and you did have up until very recent history, explicit sacrifice to false gods, for example. Um, there are still, you know, albinos being kidnapped in some country somewhere for their magic properties, that sort of thing. But but Willie, the British stopped the practice of sati in India. That was bad. <laughs> that was bad. They were... Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, imagine believing that. Somebody actually does. I remember, I'm going to tell this story, being in a class at an institution I won't name with a guest speaker. I won't name, but I probably should, but I can't remember his name, to be honest with you. Such, such was the impression this guru made on me. And uh, he was like, well, you can't judge a culture because they're all the same. You as a Christian can't go in and judge because who are you to judge? I'm like, no, 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 this is bad. Like uh, uh, child slavery, sexual slavery is bad. Okay. <laughs> Mutilation of their bodies, objectively bad. Well, well, what does that mean? Are you making a value judgment? Yes. Yes, I'm making a value judgment. 100%. Because God does this everywhere. And he calls Israel, he calls the Hebrews, yeah, make a value judgment on the Canaanites. I'm doing it. And you're carrying that out. So... Yeah, where the church goes in and civilizes, I we can't make any apologies for that. Maybe, maybe when you die, you don't set your wife on fire. You know, maybe, maybe. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know, maybe. Uh, you know, all of these things that that I, uh, I mean, I blush at even using some of these horrible examples, like I just did earlier, of what evil men do to people. But the church comes in and goes, enough of that. Here's the light of Christ. You no longer need yeah. to do that. And we're actually taught to apologize for that. I'm Amen. not even I'm not even apologizing for teaching them how to sing and for putting Western clothes <laughs> on them. Imagine thinking Cortez did anything wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just so bizarre to me how I mean, if you look at if you look at how these people were living, you you honestly think that it was it was bad. And they go, well, atrocities were done. Sure, atrocities were done by by conquerors in every place. Where do you see what the Indian tribes in America did to other tribes that they conquered? But where Christians did go into the world, um, it's been largely very good. I mean, not just spiritually, but things like potable water and wells and things like. I mean, well, this goes this goes back to what Zellwin was talking about before with um, the the mission of the church is not just to. Well, I mean, the the mission proper of the church is to preach the gospel, right? Um, but the the shepherding of the nations and the or uh, that's synonymous with ruling. He rules with his rod of iron. Um, he does he does teach his law, and that's that brings about all kinds of temporal blessings as well as the eternal blessing of the gospel. Well, I'll remind you of what our brother James says: pure religion, undefiled before God and the Father, is this: to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And so the church goes through with a civilizing influence in order to take care of these things. You know, wherever the church goes, there the gospel is preached. Wherever the gospel takes root, there the Holy Spirit is at work, and then there is true Christian charity, and, and often an improvement of community, especially the church community at first. The, the devil, I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe the devil builds hospitals, and he does, and that's probably why I don't like to go to them today if I can avoid it. So <laughs> We build them, and he corrupts them. Yeah, we, uh, we build them. And the, uh, and he, yeah, yeah, there we go. All right, guys. Any final words? If we've got any listeners left, 
Well, the the end of chapter twelve will will set this up because I'm sure that people take copious notes as we go through this. Um, the end of chapter twelve is just I mean it's just about to launch into the the really good stuff. Um, so at the very end, the dragon ends up um, he can't get to the woman in the wilderness, so he goes to the seashore and he stands on the sand on the seashore, and something's going to come up out of the sea. And so that's where we're headed. We're headed to all right. He couldn't get to Jerusalem. He couldn't get to the, you know, the quote-unquote Jewish Christians. But what's he going to do to the, uh, us poor Gentiles now? Very well. Well, Zell and David, thank you very much. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com, slash wordfitly, or even Twitter, at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and David Apple. God love you, and God bless. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Revelation 12, 5 and 6.